0: You can become a direct patron of this podcast like our friends Brian Clark, Elliot Payne, and Gravity Fish. Go to patreon.com/newdisruptors, that's patreon.com slash new disruptors, that's patreo dot com, for more details.
1: This is The New Disruptors, a podcast by and about Glenn Fleischman. <laughs> I'm guest host Jason Snell. You can listen to The New Disruptors on uh, Boing Boing at boingboing.net or our own, our, like this is me now, I've taken it over, our own website at newdisrupt.org. I am Jason Snell. As I said, I am the uh, guest host because our guest in this episode, very special episode of The New Disruptors, is the host of the new disruptors Glenn Fleischman. Hi Glenn, welcome to your own podcast. Thank you ha- thank you for having me on my podcast. <laughs> uh sure, you're very welcome. I figured it was time. So, uh th- we should explain what's going on here. You did something interesting yourself in a in a new disruptor sort of way, which is in addition to your work. I should ex- I should introduce my guest by the way. Your host. Uh, the, he's a freelance writer. Writes a lot for uh, The Economist among other places. But more recently, has been doing some interesting other projects. The magazine, obviously, and most recently completed a successful Kickstarter project for the magazine, The Book. And that's I think where we want to spend most of our time is talking about your experience. Doing this Kickstarter,
0: yeah, I thought it would be horrible to interview myself. That I'm not sure how that would even work. But people are asking um, because I'd spent so much time interviewing people on this podcast itself uh, about their crowdfunding and other kinds of collaborative efforts. They said, "Okay, what lessons did you learn?" And I, you know, and even though the project isn't over, the fact that the campaign's done and I've completed at this uh, recording, I've completed like the first. Probably most difficult round of fulfillment, um, and we could talk about that. Uh, so uh, I thought I would answer questions because, because by reader and listener demand, uh, people want to know. Like, all right, so you put your money with your mouth. Is what happened? So I'm I'm happy to talk about what happened.
1: That's great. So I, I want to start by talking about failure. I know that our, <laughs> our, our mutual friend Greg Noss uh, loves to talk about failure, and it is important. And we can't talk about you and Kickstarter without starting with the fact that you had a failed Kickstarter uh, before you had this more recent success. And I would imagine that in some ways, th- that is where this story starts, is you, you were going to do a Kickstarter for a book about about crowdfunding, and you set it up, and it, and it failed. And uh, I'm wondering, at, <laughs> first... <laughs> First off, after that failure, did you say to yourself, why am I going through this again? And <laughs> what did you learn from that failure? Well,
0: oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a, it's a classic. It's the uh, Bildungsroman, right? It's the – I have to use German because, you know, it's me uh, – is that um, uh, I had the terrible – it's the fall from grace. It's the things are great. Yep. Everything falls apart. Man goes wandering in the wilderness for a long time, comes back with answers and and achieves a new kind of enlightenment. So I have the end point.
1: It's this Joseph Campbell uh, hero story, right? You've got a uh, you've got to have that fall from grace before you come back.
0: That's right, and I think it's. I mean, I think that's the thing. Uh, Greg Noss, we should link in the show notes. I will link in the show notes to uh, the essay he wrote about failure. And it's funny because failure can can cripple you, or it can teach you what you need to go on. And I, I, right. I think I, I think from the seeds of my destruction, I, I sowed new plants that grew. Yeah, well, I had this idea after reporting on Kickstarter and crowdfunding for I don't know maybe three years. At that point, a year. Uh, this is a year ago, uh, July or so. That. Um, there wasn't, there are practical guides. People had written, you know, ebooks and self published guides and websites about how to run a Kickstarter campaign from the mechanical standpoint. And there, there are more out now than there were then for sure. But, um, there wasn't anything that sort of described, I felt it encompassed both the, the joy of what you were doing and the freedom and showed practical examples and also guided someone through what you needed to do to make it happen. So I had this idea of sort of, Almost two books in one, which is one of my problems, which was case studies and exploration of what worked at lots of different levels from Amanda Palmer at the top to, you know, thousand dollar ballet concerts at the bottom. And on the other side, it was going to be really practical like, here's how you shoot a video. If you can't shoot a video, you know, here's the formats you should use if you have compression artifacts. And surely, As you know from your own career and experience, like things that work best are usually have one thing in them. When you start trying to put two or more things into a box designed for one thing, people get confused and unhappy and uninterested. And uh, that was certainly part of it. So people were not sure. In fact, at one point I was thinking I might produce two books from one project. And I think my message was really muddled. But, you know, I got it together. I felt like I'm just going to pull the trigger and see if I can make it happen. That was certainly one problem is I don't think I knew exactly what I wanted to do yet and that's that's hard. The other is I hadn't done anything like it before. People didn't know me as someone who had written about crowdfunding because most of my writing for The Economist is either uh, – without it's uh, anonymous. There's no byline or it says GF on blog posts. But I hadn't built an audience of say – tens or hundreds of thousands of people who were turning to me to read about crowdfunding and independent project creation and that kind of thing. So I didn't really have an audience to turn to. Most people knew me as a Mac writer at that point or maybe a a general technology writer if they followed me at all. So that was problem number two. (laughs) Problem number three is I set the the rewards all wrong. I was thinking about it as being a really nice book I was going to make. And so I think one of the book reward levels was like $75.00. So there really wasn't a good entry point if you just wanted a book. The only entry points were if you wanted to patronize the project. And I was thinking about it from that standpoint. And that was all wrong too. And immediately after it launched, uh, someone with some great Kickstarter experience – emailed me and said, you really, oh my god, you got to do this totally differently. And I was like, well, <laughs> it might be too late because people already pledged those levels and I can't change. Once people have pledged, you can't change rewards in Kickstarter once there's a single pledge at certain levels. So about a week or 10 days in, I got to 10% of the $35,000 I was trying to raise, which is, again, also too much. For what it was, too much money, even though it was what was necessary for what I thought I wanted to do, but it was too much for what people saw as the goal of the thing. So, all of these things together was like, all right, I'm pulling the plug. Like, this isn't going to happen, and there's no reason to go to the bitter end and, you know, and fail very publicly with, you know, like 20% of funding or something if I got there, or to hector people and try to get them. At
1: the end, so I pulled the plug. There's also a curve there, isn't there, where where you can look at the funding even fairly early on and say this isn't gonna this isn't gonna make it because I know that there are sort of people don't talk about it as much, but there are there are sort of percentages of things that are are on track uh, and it's not linear at all because there's a Kickstarter's have a life of their own, but I think there's also this case that you can look at it and say it, look it's not it's it's not going to make it the terms are wrong, but also the support isn't there and I. I know, you know, you talked about that a lot in in the new Kickstarter as well. That you you had a lot of of confidence in that one as as it progressed. Not to say it wasn't a huge amount of work, but it, it was shaping up pretty well. Which I think your first project, you know, the numbers didn't look very good either. <laughs> it,
0: that is exactly right. It was very easy to tell. Very early on, because I think uh, I mean another year and a half almost in there 's more statistical analysis of it, but even uh, you know in July of two thousand and twelve there had already been i forget like twenty five thousand projects that had been, that had been successful somewhere in that range, but you know Kickstarter was already like a multi 100000000 billion dollar disbursement operation by then, and people have been doing these analyses and said all right let 's take all of the projects that succeed the ones that don 't look uh, separate them into dollar levels like zero to ten thousand dollars ten to fifty. And had done a fair amount of analysis, and uh, I think even then it was pretty clear that if you didn't hit, um, you know, if you didn't get, to, I, I think the statistic, and as I recall, and I think it's still true, is that something like twenty percent of all Kickstarter projects launched get no pledges at all. Another twenty percent never reach twenty percent of funding. So that's forty percent of all projects right there. 44% of Kickstarter projects do reach funding. So there's a, a a small gap like about a fifth or a quarter of projects get somewhere between 20% and 99.9% and don't fund, but the curve is pretty strong like once you hit roughly 50% in smaller projects like 50 grand or below, which is now a smaller project. And it's a little bit further along, like I think it's 60 or 70% for bigger projects, which fail more often, uh, then the odds of you getting to full funding are very, very high. Like they're well above 95%. So I'd hit that point where I had 10% of funding 10 days in, and I thought, there is no curve. Like everyone who was trying to support me as a patron was in in the first few days, and we're done. You know, I'm not getting additional bids, nothing's going on. It's stagnated. So, you know, I don't need to. I don't need to take 30 days to figure out that I did something <laughs> you, terribly you, wrong at this point. You
1: topped out there. I was reading yeah. an article about the Baseball Hall of Fame, which to get into the Baseball Hall of Fame, you need 75% of the voters need to vote for you, and an interesting statistical analysis from somebody who said they should lower the, they should lower the requirement because anybody who gets 50% Gets it's like a hundred percent of the people who get fifty percent of the oh. vote will at some point get seventy five percent of the vote and it's an interesting thing where you think about the hundred percent as being this the cutoff obviously if it doesn't fund it doesn't fund but in fact there is a cutoff earlier on that really if you go and there's some some buying psychology in that too right I mean you you the amount of money you put away in your uh, successful Kickstarter in the last few days yes. was amazing so there's obviously a psychology there too that people want to back a winner. Or they, they think they've got time. And then they realize the clock is ticking and so they they come in at the end. So really the number that you need to surpass is earlier on and it's almost a psychological barrier more than anything else.
0: I think that's terrific insight and uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you host is you have not run a Kickstarter campaign. I have Uh, not. You've done a crowdfunded t-shirt campaign. I did. was very successful however. And the
1: dynamic was very similar where we were grinding to get it over – I mean the bar is so low for that and we ended up – We
0: should talk – this is because I just interviewed these guys at – uh, well, uh, Cotton Bureau and United Pixel Workers, and this is for, yeah. let's plug your show, The Incomparable, of which I'm a regular guest, uh, geeky podcast about cool stuff that we like to consume and read and talk about. And uh, you wanted to do – we talked about doing T-shirts forever. You had a logo design and went to um, – Cotton Bureau does that kind of uh, – crowdfunded thing where there's a threshold you know if you get to, I think it's 25 is it's a pretty low bar. Yeah,
1: it was a very low threshold and so the the psychology I mean some shirts don't make it but for us I think we figured that it wasn't going to be a problem but the psychology of of crowdfunding still held in the sense that it's a the appeal of it was that they handled all the money and they produced it and and also that there was a limited window that that there are a couple weeks in which to buy it and then it's gone and they do a single run cuz you know set up and all of that you don't want to keep making t-shirts you want to do a single run It's either that or you go down to like print on demand and the quality is a lot lower. And I I saw the same thing happen with that t shirt campaign as I saw with your Kickstarter and with so many other Kickstarters, which is the ticking clock has this power that, you know, I thought we did pretty well. And then we got to the last two days and all of a sudden we, I think, more than doubled the number we sold because people respond to the idea that if I don't get it now, I'm going to miss it. And, you know, it's already – it's not about I'm trying to save this thing. I'm trying to make it fund. It's more like just the psychology of limited time offer that that kicks in there at the end. Once it's already kind of confirmed and successful, you know, that part's out of the way. But there's still this amazing buying psychology that I think Kickstarter taps into. And I definitely saw it with the magazine, the book, where, you know, we were worried about, boy, I hope Glenn gets across his threshold. And then the last few days, it was just – shooting past even your stretch goal which I thought well the stretch goals never going to happen and you went past that too so it's amazing the psychology at work there.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're exactly I think you're exactly right about all this good host. Uh the, <laughs> um, but I, there's this I think success begets success, as you were saying, is that there, there's different kinds of people who pledge at different times. So, you know, in my unsuccessful Kickstarter in in crowdfunding the book or whatever I was calling it, the guide to how to fail at crowdfunding, uh, the, uh, which I got a couple good articles out of people saying like, hey, guy funding a book about crowdfunding, a book about crowdfunding failed. Ha ha. And I actually interacted with a couple of those reporters and I was like, you know. This wasn't intended as a cautionary tale or as an object lesson, but I'm taking stuff away from this and I will be back. And, and then I was. But the, you could see in that campaign where really 100 percent of the people who supported it were there because the, the pricing was wrong. The value for what you got was totally out of line for most of the items unless you were a patron. So I I knew everybody backing it. I think 100-something people backed it and these were all the patrons. And once I'd exhausted them, I could not build on even on the momentum and it fell apart. With the the magazine book, the first 24 hours was ridiculous. Our goal was $48,000 and we hit $16,000 within 24 hours. Like 500 people just went boom. Like, okay, I've been waiting for this. People were tweeting – Take, you know, just take my money or you know backed or whatever. They were waiting for a moment in which they could show their support of me. Generally, uh, the writers and contributors who I was saying were part of it. You know, people would post like, "Hey, I'm going to be in a book if it gets funded," and they'd get a response. I,
1: and I should disclose that I am one of the writers who is in the book, so I will get paid <laughs> by you for being in the book. The check is literally in the mail. As All right, speak, excellent. Or maybe
0: has even arrived already. Uh, I'll, I'll check my mailbox. when there's we're There's tax done. issues I'll talk about later. That mm-hmm. I think are. <laughs> Another set of cautionary tales, Glenn doing things the right way in the wrong fashion or the other way around, uh but you could see what I've found in the year plus since is that and this is typical, and we should talk about this too is that people think Kickstarters are going to fail unless they rock it up, so having the first day go nuts helped other people get involved in that first day those first days but so there's there's the patrons there's the supporters there's family and friends who just want to make it succeed, you know, and well-wishers and like whatever kind of audience you've built of people who just want your thing or the people involved in your thing uh, to succeed. You know, so United Pixel Workers and Con Bureau who did uh, the comparable t-shirt, I got them on board to do a t-shirt a little late in the process. But then they're out there saying, hey, there's this Kickstarter we're part of, we'll make shirts. If it succeeds, go get one of our shirts. And you just get that little bit of a network effect that everyone contributing And this was part of my planning uh, from the start is with the – with my crowdfunding book, I had wanted to get commitments from people to be part of it and I did not. I did not do enough advanced planning because I was thinking if I had all the case studies figured out, either partly written or uh, identified, then those people could tell all of their fans we're going to be in this book and I didn't have that. In this case, I had all the writers picked. Uh, I had a preview of the book all the writing just about is done and all the writers could go out and artists photographers who are part of it could go out and did go out and say this is a thing that's only going to happen if you are part of it so i had you know 50 people out there reach you know bringing their patrons in as well and that certainly makes it easier i mean there are a lot of solo artists who have a huge reach of hundreds of thousands or millions on their own the magazine is a you know we're a boutique publication and i think i have a decent social media personal Professional reach, but I knew it would be relatively small, so I needed all these other people involved to try to get that early patronage push, and it it worked. Let's take a break so I can talk to you about Text Expander from Smile Software. This is a funny story. Just the other day, I'm doing a repetitive task at my computer, something I do. Every couple of weeks for the magazine where I have to fill in some HTML and drop in values and I'm sitting there copying and pasting things and typing in values and I've been doing this for months and months and I suddenly realize I have text expander. Why am I doing a repetitive task? So I went through, and in like 10 seconds, I wrote a macro in Text Expander that lets me take the contents of the clipboard, drop it in place, and replace all that. So I've just saved myself 15 to 20 minutes every two weeks with this one improvement. And you can do the same. Text Expander is a program for Mac OS X that takes all the TDM out of typing over and over. It watches your keystrokes, it triggers expansions, and you can use special things like date and time shortcuts or clipboard. You can use Apple script in there. It's a way that you can avoid the tedium of acting like a computer when you're a human being. The new version has this option to put in fill in snippets so you can create form letters and then have multiple choice pop up menus and other fields. So you just start from a template. Create a custom response with a handful of keystrokes. I use Text Expander also with a shortening service with bit.ly, I can type /g bit.ly, my own personal shortcut. And the Apple script that triggers it is something that comes with Text Expander. I've punched in my account information and it goes out to Bitly, does the shortening, comes back, plops that new URL right where I was typing. It's a great thing. So don't be a computer. Be a human being, and use Text Expander to make your expansions work better for you. You can find out more about Text Expander and Smile's other fine products at smilesoftware.com/nd. That's nd, like new disruptors. Would you let them know that
1: we sent you? Now let's get back to the podcast. So let's let's back up for a moment and talk about the, the prep here. Because you said in your first Kickstarter uh you wanted to line people up and you couldn't. Uh you just didn't get to it and you made some mistakes in terms of what the uh what the levels were and I know you talked to some Kickstarter experts who, who gave you some some pro tips about about how to do this. So can you talk a little bit about how you laid the groundwork? Because I'm curious about that. How do you pick? And I know you adjusted your levels as you went, too. You did add some levels. I, I remember sending you an email saying, why isn't there a combo pack where I can get you know, a subscription and a, and a book? And you added that in there. And, of course, you added in a thing that sadly didn't get picked, where for $5,001 you got to have dinner with me. But I, how did you pick uh, when you went out what, what the levels were in order to get that right in a way that that... that you didn't the first time out.
0: Well, there's um, I'll, I'll I'll back up even further as well. There's one thing I didn't mention too is that so the part of the prep um before levels was I went away you know nursed my wounds from this Kickstarter campaign and basically changed my entire life as you know is that I went off and I this is the part of the you know the building's wrong one is I went ah you know I've fallen from grace and, and I don't know what I'm doing with myself and I went on Jeopardy won a pile of money in right. Jeopardy which
1: was good gives you a little freedom That's right. You. step one go on Jeopardy
0: exactly <laughs> but it was just the notion of like okay I have a tiny bit of breathing space. Um, Marco started the magazine. I was able to join that and not be in charge of it, but, you know, be involved in the regular creation of stuff that I really like articles and writings, the kinds of things I want to do. So I was feeling much more um, personally fulfilled being involved in that sequence after 20 years of of doing kind of. The same thing on and off.
1: Well, although see, I was gonna I, this was the this was the the Glenn story arc that I was gonna tell uh, up at the at the front of your show, but <laughs> I, I didn't because you know I, I, it's a good story to tell about. Well, here's a guy who's a freelance writer who then suddenly he goes on Jeopardy, and then he he starts working <laughs> on this magazine. He he becomes somebody who is now kind of creating some of his own projects. But you yeah. had projects like ISBN.new, you know, you've had some projects on the side before, but I think people still thought of you as primarily, and you probably thought of yourself as primarily a freelance writer. You're writing for other people. And then you've had this transformation where you are, uh, you know, the owner, publisher, editor of the magazine, and, you know, and you did this book, and, and you started this podcast. And that is a a change, even though I think, you know, I think the seeds were there because I, I know you've done some some projects on the side, but uh, it was a big change from where you were a year, year and a half ago.
0: This is true. It's like when you, it's nice hearing somebody else talk about your own life because you're like, oh yeah, that's right. Well, because I, you know, I've always <laughs> had some bits and pieces, but so even when I was writing for you at Macworld, find fine Macworld magazine. And, and Tidbits. The, the and- tidbits, right. I've worked for Tidbits for, you know, uh, 15 years uh, in various capacities, but I always had mostly jobs, even if they were incredibly, free, incredibly great relationship. Like my relationship with Tidbits was, you know, I could sort of write whatever I wanted to. I did programming for them, but on my own schedule. And sometimes we had crunches, but it was sort of this ongoing, we didn't have this huge schedule because we didn't have the, you know, funds to hire me as a full-time programmer. And I'm not a good enough programmer to be their full-time programmer, but we just kind of kept working along. So some months I would do almost no programming and others I might do like 50 hours of programming, but it was always, and, and as much as Tanya and Adam angst at Tidbits are, they bring people into their endeavor. They never make it feel like it's their thing and they're making all the decisions. It's a very cooperative thing, but they pull the trigger at the end of the day about what's going to happen, which I appreciate. Having worked in environments in which there's too much consensus, not enough decision making, <laughs> nobody
1: pulls the trigger. Nobody it just, pulls the trigger. Everybody right? looks at the trigger and says, "Hmm." Yeah, and eventually somebody should things,
0: pull that. So those things fall apart. So I appreciate that they are
1: they are the publisher, you know, and they it's their thing. At the end of the day, it is it is their. Their thing, yeah. They they have to make those decisions,
0: but they also they're very inclusive. But they are they're the bosses, and they reap the results uh, of you know any excess profit beyond what they need to pay their own bills goes to them. And I realized like that it's not that I needed to own my own thing, but that after so many years of working with successful entrepreneurs, and you know sometimes I'm working on the scale of writing for the Economist, which is not an entrepreneurial thing, although it's still I think like fifty one percent privately held by a mysterious. A serious group, the economist group, but it's uh, it's more that I felt I was in a position finally to be able to derive enough of my living by doing things on my own. In the past, like my Wi Fi networking news site ran for a decade, right? And in the middle of it, when it was at the height and I had um advertising and there was all this uh community based um Wi Fi going on and all these new 802.11n devices being sold, even then it was maybe. Somewhere between twenty and forty percent of what I made to make a living. I was doing all this other work to keep, uh, you know, to keep the family uh, finances in order, and it never grew. Like I watched it grow, and I was like, "Oh, this could get bigger." I launched additional sites. I did things, and then the interest in Wi-Fi through nothing I was doing faded. You know, and a gadget site sort of faded and have changed. And I hooked my wagon to different stars. And this was the first time I felt with the magazine that this is something. That, um, you know, first by being involved as the editor and then by buying it when Marco is ready to move on, this is something that could be sustainable for the long term and eventually could be my full-time living. And that was a big realization for me because I think people think about me as having a ton of independence, but the independence is completely tempered by dependence on editors and organizations for which I, uh, you know, contribute have done work. Right. So this this was a way to say, okay, I'm ready to sort of – be a, almost you know 85% my own my own man and see what happens but the podcast was part of that too you know I should say you mentioned that in passing is I had um uh like 6 or 7 years ago I had done like 30 podcast episodes for Wi-Fi Networking News because I thought this is a medium worth trying it was only a few years old there was some money out there but not very much and so in the first wave of podcasting I did like, let's say, like 30 episodes. I did these interviews um, with people all over the world about Wi Fi, and it was very well tailored to the audience. And they sometimes got thousands of downloads each. And I sold like no advertising. <laughs> I put in an enormous amount of time. Like, all right, well, that's over. Then the second, or maybe this is the third wave of podcasting happened. And there are serious sponsors willing to both back stuff because they want it to exist and they want the branding, or willing to back it because they want. Hard and fast results based on tracking codes, and in this wave, I was thinking the podcast plus the you know at that point the podcast by itself becomes something I do on my own, tempered by advertising, and the magazine is my job, and then both became you know the magazine became something I own, and the podcast alongside it, and so that's been interesting too to watch those develop uh, in two different media that are both maturing in very different ways: electronic publications and and podcasting as a as a sponsored medium.
1: I do think it's indicative of the the time we live in right now, that there was a time when you were either a salaried employee somewhere or you were a freelancer and, like you said, you were dependent on assignments from – the your editors and and if the economist decides they don't want to do a tech blog anymore or macworld has a budget cut and you know or or tidbits has to cut back on your hours because they're doing something you know you are dependent on on those things and your your work is coming from these organizations and today things are a little different and and you know you don't have your own tech site per se you're still doing that as freelance but you know whether it's somebody who's got a blog or it's somebody who has a podcast or in your case you've you've got the magazine these are jobs in a way but they're also your your things and they're entities in their own but they're not you know you're not either a freelance writer or a paid person you you have a you have products of your own plus you're doing freelance so it's it's interesting that we've gotten to that point where you can have these other jobs that are also you <laughs> reap all the benefit from them because they're your they're your product they're your your thing they're not all all freelance, you know. I, I don't know. I feel like that we we used to have that either or that you're either a freelance writer or you work somewhere. And and you you are splitting the difference here.
0: You could sometimes be paid enough in a, in a full time job. Well, I, mean, I guess that's part of it. Is there there are not as many. In this space, particular, there's there's such a mix of people uh, working full-time jobs or working full-time jobs getting paid badly and doing some kind of mix of things. And it used to be that it, if you had a full-time job, your employer would be would frown upon moonlighting, right? And right. so now the fact that you know the I mean a lot of publications, especially in this space, but in a lot of creative fields or fields that evolve people who can go off and do pieces of work, you know, even like programming, for instance, how many millions of programmers are there in the world who you know don 't have full time jobs, but they're contract and they do x hours for one party, or it may even be full time contracting is that the companies are they want to buy just the capacity they need. It's like on demand right. well, labor.
1: Our aforementioned friend, Greg Noss is in that he quit his full-time job, but now he is a full-time contractor for various, I think clients. And, and, and he can do that. Now I should point out by the way, as another footnote that I am one of those people who has that, that moonlighting issue, which is famously for anybody who's listened to <laughs> the unprofessional podcast with Lex Friedman is we've had that issue about like, if we have people who are uh, tech writers for employed by IDG and, uh, Then they, you know, do they get to go off and use their tech expertise to start their own podcasts rather than just podcasting for us? And that is a constant, you know, give and take. uh Whereas if they, if you get outside of your sort of like core area, then it's a lot easier. Which is why Lex has done his podcast, and I've even got mine, but it's not a, it's not a tech podcast. But it's tricky because these days the opportunities are there in a way they weren't before. There wasn't any way to really, you know, you obviously if you're a full time employee, you're not going to go work for somebody else, you know. uh, uh, a competitor across the street but when it's your own project the the it changes a little bit so you know you 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 have this position now where i can't think of you as a freelance writer anymore because you were also doing the magazine and the new disruptors and, and it, that's really Interesting to me.
0: Well, and I'm going to write about Kickstarter for the Economist, and they're totally cool with it because um, now I'm bringing expertise back. And you know, when the campaign was going, I would never have proposed writing something about it for the the Babbage blog where I contribute most frequently there. Uh, but now that it's over, I was like, hey, I should write about this. So like, oh yeah, and they're very they're very supportive. And and as a freelancer, well, the Economist particularly, and you know, and MacWorld has always treated me this way too. Is that that um, I get the best of being a staffer without being you know having the staff requirements. or 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 getting salary and whatever, but I have the the freedom as a freelancer to pitch and do stuff that is outside of what staff writers are typically doing or I can bring a particular expertise to it. And so I feel like I've been able to carve out And this is my advice to everybody who's always asking about blogs or other things. It's like I found some passions and those passions happen to intersect well with things that are difficult for people who are full-time staffers at publications to cover because they mostly have to be generalists. Right. And they don't have the time even if they have the interest. So a great example is Tim Cross who's uh, an economist staff writer staff correspondent, terrific... Or actually, I think he should say he's at an editor level now, I believe, but he uh, developed a video game specialty inside The Economist, which is not something they write about constantly, but it was his interest and it's grown. So actually within... The Economist. If something gets written about video games, it's almost always by you know T. Dot C. Dot on the blogs or uh, internally, or they have someone else internally who developed a seemingly a fascination with 3D printing, and now they run a lot of really smart 3D printing stuff because it happened in house. But before those two guys got that interest, they would have typically, not always, turned to freelancers or stringers or other contractors to write in a most informed way about it. So I think that's part of the flexibility too is as the staff of any company, you know, we're talking the publication world, but any company that needs to have some expertise in-house and outsource some, the fact that there's less expertise in-house because most companies have, you know, fewer jobs, or if they're really, really busy, they can't fill their jobs fast enough. So if you have some kind of, you know, domain expertise, then it becomes useful As a way to contract. And I mean, it's it's most obvious as a writer because people know I'm writing about Bitcoin now or I'm writing about Wi-Fi. But I think it's true in a lot of fields of endeavor, too, that one area of deep expertise that's slightly unusual but becomes popular can become a ticket to your own career.
1: Now I'm not going to let you uh, uh, get away from talking about your lessons learned when you set up Kickstarter. Lessons I realize learned. that's that's nuts and bolts. That's I right, know we digressed into jobs. Well, but, it happens, but nuts and bolts of putting it together.
0: Well, so I spent you know so I, my my time in the wilderness. So from July 2012 to uh, you know roughly uh, November 2013, I was trying to listen. And so I don't you know I don't want to sound mercenary, but I. I've been obsessed about crowdfunding, as you well know, for quite some time, and um, one thing I did is I went through with Tidbits. uh, We wanted to start a membership program, and so two years ago now, uh, after a a year of planning really because it was such a fundamental change for the organization, which is really had no full-time staff run by the angst but all different bits and pieces of people's time, including theirs, they really mostly run – a successful ebook publishing company now. It used to be the publication was the big thing. That's where a lot of their effort goes. So we spent a long time, we spent 2011 planning, launched this thing, and it was essentially crowdfunding. And I built the back end of it to tie into an existing credit card processing system. So I wound up having, before I launched that failed project, I went through this very successful membership campaign in which we said, Pledge at any level. There's really almost no benefit, <laughs> but you want to support us. It was almost pure patronage, which some benefits there are. You get a status. There's a, there's a lot of little things that matter to people who are longtime tidbits readers. I ha- so I I did that. Then between the the crowdfunding book and launching the magazine book, I did a million interviews. You know, the podcast. I did fifty interviews on the podcast, mostly with people who had taken some aspect of of funding and production at their own hands for their career. And I try to listen and I try to not extract information, you know, for my own purposes. But for the benefit of the audience, uh, the questions I asked were questions I wanted answered as well. And then had the experience with the magazine and seeing what people would pay for, how subscriptions work, sort of the failure of subscriptions as a solitary model for funding things, which, you know, we're so far, you know, you know from – that your side of the publication world, like what print subscriptions are about and online advertising, the magazine is such a weird thing because it's one of the few publications in the world that – and I think I'm saying this legitimately. It's one of the few – well, or American publications that is electronic, generates a substantial cash flow but was 100 percent based on subscriptions. I mean there are other small publications and not to put them down but they don't generate tons of money. They couldn't support a staffer for instance but they're electronic only and subscription only. And there are, you know, specialized stock newsletters and there are um you know publications with hybrid models in which they do uh they might be a nonprofit, do donations plus subscriptions, plus whatever, uh, sponsorships and things. So I had all this kind of stuff going into it. So you'd asked before, I'm sorry, reward levels, right? So <laughs> that was one of the big things, I think, though. One of the big lessons learned was that you have different kinds of people who back a project. Some are it's a pre-order, some are patrons, some are some kind of mix. Of that, Like they like what you're doing, and if you give them a sufficient reason, then they're going to order the thing. So if you don't make a project in most cases that appeals to at least those constituencies plus others that may be smaller pieces, then you're – I don't think you're going to succeed most of the time. The 20% of Kickstarter projects that get no pledges, somebody goes to all the trouble to develop it, post it, get it approved by Kickstarter, launch it, and then apparently they're – Mother and father won't even. I mean, I'm like, how do you, you know? So people just lack the follow through. Where I think they are daunted by how to even get one person, or the idea is terrible too. There are some truly terrible ideas on Kickstarter. Don't get me wrong. Um, Kickstarter does not filter for good ideas; they filter for
1: meeting the guidelines. So you chose, and this is interesting. the The idea behind this was I want to do a book, and it was really I want to do a hardcover book with the best stuff from the first year of the magazine. It gives people something tangible. It potentially reaches an audience that hasn't read the magazine or started reading the magazine and was, you know, inundated with four articles every two weeks. And I was like, I can't read that many articles, and because that's I know a piece of feedback you get is that oh yeah. you know, some magazines you feel if you if you're not reading at all then you're overwhelmed and you stop, it because some people, it's like Twitter, some people want to read it all, and uh, some people are 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 fine with skimming, um, but I know that that was an issue. So you made some interesting decisions, because you've got a collection of, in this Kickstarter, a collection of things that were Obviously, like, I'm really excited and I want to support this, where you had an art print and you had that T-shirt and you had some stuff like that. And and you also had, like, a New Disruptors sponsorship and you had being thanked in the book. These are things that I think we kind of expect from Kickstarter. But you also had the hardcover book, which was the sort of number one concept. And then you had ebooks that were, you know, the, the idea here is you're funding the printing of a hardcover book, but if you don't want to pay for the hardcover book, you can still get an ebook edition or potentially ebook collections and things like that. And I thought that was interesting that you obviously tried to create a spread that even if somebody whether it was psychology of like, look, you know, everybody buys the second or third least expensive thing. And so you want to put some stuff down at the bottom. Or whether it was like literally some people aren't going to want to buy a hardcover book, but I still want them involved. Maybe the ebook will do it. I thought it was an interesting spread of things that were, you know, you've got your core product, which is the hardcover book. And then you've got everything up and down, which I thought was, I thought that was interesting.
0: Oh, that's, well, I'm glad to hear that too. Cause that was, that was part of what I heard from, uh, so many successful projects was that. Well, there's two things. One is $10 and $25 are your best price points. Huh. You have to have things at those price points. And I've talked to people who haven't, and it's a mixed bag. It depends. So, my friend Dean Putney, who's been on the show um, and he gave me a lot of advice for this project, he had finished in September raising, I want to say, I think it was $118,000 for a hardcover book that was a Almost a facsimile of a collection of, photo- of photographs his german great grandfather took in the trenches in World War one and before it 's an amazing story it 's an amazing collection, and you know his goal was fifty grand and he raised you know two and two uh, times more than two times that, and he also was crazy because it 's already done like he actually fulfilled it and he he had his act together. The book was laid out and done and off to the printer before the campaign was done wow. that 's the kind of guy he is so he 's a model citizen here and Um, He did something weird. Despite having spent a year studying how to do Kickstarter, his rewards were incredibly high. He had a few things at the low level, but his book was – if you got in early, there was like a $65 super early bird special for a hardcover book. And I think the retail price was like $79 if you didn't get in on the early side. And that's unusual for a Kickstarter to succeed, especially to overfund that much with a book that's priced that high. But he had something so compelling and interesting – uh, you know, I would argue most people buying it were not friends, family, patrons. Dean is not a public figure. Like, he's known in certain circles, but he's not known – he's known for um, his collection of animated GIFs and other – in programming Boing Boing's back end. So he managed to get an audience of people passionately interested in the actual project, and that's unusual, but he planned it extremely well. So he's an outlier, and even though he gave me advice – like I and he gave me advice to put in this uh, these levels too. The super early bird, early bird, and regular special – I would never have done that before seeing his campaign, and now I think it's become almost a a fixture of newer Kickstarters where you're rewarding super early adopters. Let's pause for just a moment so I can tell you about our other sponsor, Media Temple. And if you listen to the end of this bit, I've got a coupon code for a discount. So Media Temple's grid service has, for years, been the web hosting choice of more designers, developers, and creative professionals than any other platform. And that's because a single grid account can host anything from your portfolio site to 100 different client projects. It includes 100 gigabytes of storage, includes a terabyte of data transfer, and the grid is ready for anything they have hundreds of servers working together in their cloud to keep your sites online if you hit the front page of reddit you're prepared and don't we all want to be on the front page of reddit well if you get there you're set you don't have to suddenly spin up more servers or worry about downtime they're there for you they manage this all through a simple custom control panel and it's backed by media temple's famous 24 by 7 live support they also offer virtual private server solutions if you want that with their dv developer and DV Managed Hosting Plans. Now, that coupon I was talking about, you can get a special discount, New Disruptors listeners, off your first month. Get 25% off that first month of web hosting by going to mediatemple.net, entering your promo code TND, The New Disruptors TND, during sign-up. 25% off, give them a try. They're the place that professionals go. And now,
1: back to the show. Well, there's your ticking clock too. Just yeah. as you get the ticking clock at the end, you've got this ticking clock at the beginning. Like, oh, geez, if I'm one of the first hundred, I get a I get a deal here, and that not only gets that uh, Kickstarter on its upward trajectory, that rocketing up that you talked about, but it also makes them feel like I got my I got myself a deal, and it plays on the psychology of this is going to go away if I don't do it fast, and it gets them in the project.
0: Then. Yeah, I'm going to go in, so maybe I should go in now because I save money, but I'm still supporting the project. I mean, this is you know the project said it's twenty five bucks now. And I also I try to structure this in a way so that it was clear that the hardcover book was a real value. You're getting a bundle, getting the hardcover and the ebook for twenty-five bucks, including US shipping, which I think to people's ears sounds pretty good. At thirty, it sounds pretty good. At thirty-five, it still isn't bad because it's a bundle and it sounds more like a normal price. Now in practice, I'm gonna wind up doing the I decided to do the pre-orders after the campaign. Thirty-five bucks is become the normal price. The ebook, I think I'm pricing at twelve dollars separately the um, hardcover book, 30 bucks. And uh, there's reasons for that too. And the bundle is 35. But in the campaign, I wanted the campaign to feel like a little bit of a discount because people got in early. If you got in super early, you got a super discount. If you got in a little bit later, you still got a discount. If you still wanted it, then you could get it and you're not being ripped off. You're not paying a premium for pre-ordering during the stage. You're going to pay as much as anybody would uh, afterwards, but you still have to be part of it so it gets funded, so it happens. So you're still part of that cycle of things. Uh,
1: now you, cycle of things happening. There's no way you could do a you know a, a, the hardcover book for for ten, but you had to hit the ten dollars price point. Was the ebook always part of your conception that I'll also do an ebook version, or was that something that you crafted because you needed to have something down at ten dollars?
0: Well, this is how little I apparently learned, and then fortunately before the end did. Come back and learn it, which was originally I was thinking it was going to be. Uh, and this is something Dean talked me out of, which is great because Dean is great. Uh, I was going to have um, like a $15 get the first year of the magazine as individual issues uh, offer and then only the hard book ebook bundles. And I forget if it was talking to Dean or, you know, I showed this to a bunch of people, some with no Kickstarter background, but who are savvy in terms of social media and understanding what people respond to uh, and others who had run a lot of campaigns and to our dear friend, Lex Friedman, who just apparently knows how to mint money. It's like a magical thing um, he has. I don't know how it works. He doesn't either. So uh, don't ask too many questions. And so I showed it to people. And and that was one of the things that came up was like your your first level uh, – D- D- Dean's comment specifically was the first thing people see as they scroll down should not be something unrelated to the project. Right. So you need a $10 level. That is a thing that is related to the project. I'm like, you know, I shouldn't be opposed to the idea of people just buying the ebook. I need to give people a position who want to help to come in at $10 and not give them a hard time. No, no, you can only come in at 25 And then I realized also internationally, it's a huge deal. In the end of uh, – I think right now we have a little over a 1,000 – no, that's not right. I think it's 1,100 books committed to be printed at this stage, uh, which is less than I thought to reach the goal. I thought we would reach uh, – the monetary goal only if we hit about 1,400 to 1,500 books. So that's interesting too. And the, the numbers still work and I'll be taking pre-orders and it's it's all going to balance out okay budgetarily uh, because so much more of the budget was committed to intangible things that don't cost any money to fulfill. So some of that money will go to the physical fulfillment. But my point, <laughs> my point is uh, international shipping is crazily high now. Uh, January 1st of 2013 – the prices went way up because not the gasoline pr- increases and other things had um, not been figured in apparently for years at the level they should. So all the International Union of you know concerned postal inspectors, whoever mm. sets I ICOP, I don't know whoever sets the postal rates, they uh, dramatically increased rates um, between all the different. Group so, uh, my friend matt Bores, who's been a guest on this program as well, he uh, did an October two thousand and twelve Kickstarter, and the books didn 't ship until two thousand and thirteen, which was the plan. He took a beating on international shipping because he had done all the math, including he had the weight of the book right and the shipping everything right in two thousand and twelve, and I think it cost him dollars per book uh, in fulfillment loss, basically wow, um, because of that and um, and so he didn 't you know he his campaign was successful enough and he did it the right way, he printed a bunch of extra books, which he sold a lot of and it's all worked out very well. But I had to put you know, I was I'm estimating somewhere between two fifty and five dollars per book for domestic shipping. And um it's unclear with the printers we're working with exactly what it's gonna be. It'll be in that range. And so I had that budgeted International, I had to add $15 to that. So I'm asking people, even if you come in at the super early bird level, it's going to cost you $40 to get a hardcover book and an e-book. That's a lot of money. You right. know. And in uh, a lot of countries, like European countries, the economic disparity, like they already pay more for books, so they're more used to it. But it doesn't seem like the same kind of thing. So, I wanted a ten dollar ebook so that people who wanted to support me in Europe, Australia, India, all these countries that are subscribers to the magazine, and in in, in fact we, we got bids or uh, pledges from these places, could come in and just get the ebook, and then they could have the book and they didn't have to worry about shipping. You know, in the end, about two hundred and fifty copies of the hardcover book are going overseas too, or outside the United States. So, the pricing, even though high, people did come in and and back it with the international pricing being so high as well.
1: So how did you choose the other items other than the books the the extra stuff like the art print and the t-shirt and the uh the uh, dinners and well, other other you know extravagant more extravagant items that are outside of the scope of the actual you know core project
0: well, I felt like there had to be a place for people to stretch to who wanted to help more. So even though the magazine is a for-profit endeavor, I always describe it as an experiment as I think Marco did too, which is that, you know, it's not a, a super profitable engine of uh, me buying second houses and you know, not to I don't like to plead poverty or anything like that, but it's more like this is an ongoing effort to see whether this is a sustainable thing as we diversify. And so people at some level, want to support me or The Notion or all the people involved. And so you give people a position to essentially donate, even though it's a for-profit thing, because they want this thing to keep happening. Or they want to support, you know, I've got some parents. I've been emailing with parents of writers, which is really sweet, and they're really lovely people who are backing their, you know, their 30-, 40-, 50-year-old kids involved in these books. It's really neat. Um, And they wanted to. I want to give those people a place to come in if they wanted to. And uh, so – you know, I did a few things. So one was um, – so 10 and, 10 and 25 were easy, right? Super Early Bird, which sold out almost in the first day I think or so. It sold out pretty fast. Uh, and the Super Early Bird, the $25 bundle and the $30 bundle uh, together made up like um, looking at the math here. Almost half of the money raised. So the other half came from other sources. That's the amazing part, right? Mm-hmm. That Like it wasn't the books that were – uh, you know, 75 or 80%. This is why you do these other things is that you give people a position to put in more money. So, for instance, the you know, the, I'd say even on the low end, I did that with the $15 reward where you could just get a subscription to the magazine, a one year subscription. Like that was something people had asked for. They wanted to give it away. So, or they wanted it for themselves. They wanted to not subscribe at iTunes, whatever. And so, this was a discounted subscription. And that helped on the low end. That wound up being was at 4% of the money raised so it was not insignificant and then that was also a reward that was part of the $50 and higher rewards was a year subscription and so that helped rise the tide a little bit too just having that as an option if you didn't want to get the book or you wanted the book and you also wanted to you know support the publication so the higher rewards $50 was easy because it was sort of a uh, you know it was a quasi super bundle it was a year subscription the ebook The hardcover book. Now, of course, (laughs) the flaw was if you went in at a super early bird level at 25, this was more expensive, right? You'd be paying $10 more to get this thing. So I also offered to let people add $15 to any reward level to get a subscription. It's been a nightmare in terms of accounting, but that brought in actually thousands of dollars more as add-ons, which is also sort of incredible. But above fifty, like I did the t-shirt, what the one you know one was a two you get two books instead of one book, because some people want two books. They want to give one away. The eighty dollar reward was a t-shirt because people love t-shirts, as we know. <laughs> and we've been talking, I've been talking to United Pixel Workers about doing this t-shirt uh, from Dylan McConus's design, and she was all for it. This illustration she'd done for the magazine a few issues ago. And I thought, well, this is the way to do it, is let's do it as almost a crowdfunding campaign inside the cutting campaign, because the math with T-shirts is good enough that if you print sufficient number, there's actually a decent amount of profit, and I felt like I could share some of that with Dylan and pay her an additional amount for an illustration she'd already been paid for. Uh, United Pixel workers gets their t- cut; they're very happy, and we have money left over to fund um, the publication. So that was actually a good a good thing to do. I think we wound up with about 60 T-shirts that we're going to send out. Uh, you know, at roughly thirty thirty five dollars each, depending on whether they were solo or part of a bundle. So. Again that's another increment on top the ones above that then get sort of more into patronage right because I did um I forget who recommended this I don't think I came up with this my own, but it was the the thank you levels where we thank you in the book so you're listed as a patron uh you know thank this thanks to so and so for you know their their ex- extreme support of the project and uh that's where some parents came in honestly mm. like you know we have twenty five hundred dollar backers and f- uh let's see what was the number five two hundred dollar backers the two hundred dollar Reward is five books. The hundred dollar reward is sort of the it's one book ebook subscription and thanks. So uh, it's sort of a you know it is definitely a patronage level. Again, that what is that to between the two of those, that's, uh That's uh, like four thousand so dollars. Almost ten percent of the total came from those two, or a little under ten percent came from those two levels, where people wanted to go the extra mile. And I, this is something I learned from interviewing Amanda Palmer a couple times. You know, She had a $1.1 $1. $1 million Kickstarter and everyone points to it for a lot of different reasons. Some people point and shout. Some people point and cheer. <laughs> I'm a cheerer because of what she did. But what she said to me and to many other interviews is that people come in at the level of which they can sort of – it's a combination of what they can afford and how much they feel about it. They don't necessarily come in for the reward. So the – I would argue the 10 and $25 levels are – very much a pre-order. Someone wants the thing and they're coming in at the minimum level that lets them get the thing and maybe show some support. But the she had a $1 level in her campaign. $1 got you the download of the album, electronic download. And she felt like there are people who wanted to support her, wanted to feel like a patron, and they couldn't afford more than a dollar. She wanted to give those people a position. And I think thousands of people came in at that level. But the other side was she did these $5,000 house concerts. And that's where – The writer's visit came in for my idea. Why Lex, Chris, you and I are listed on the high end is sometimes people want to have an authentic experience with a person and they're willing to pay for it if they believe that the money translates into something meaningful – as a result, it's one thing to pay $50,000 to get Tom Brokaw to come out for an hour and give a talk if, if it's that cheap. It's another thing to pay $5,001 to get Jason Snell to come and knowing that most of that money goes to support a thing you're interested in. But you also get this personal experience and Jason, you give him a talk and you explain things and you record an episode of – the incomparable, and you have dinner and it's a whole thing and maybe a bunch of people would get together and have you come out, you know, 25 or 30 people. And, you know, in the end, I don't think we have the audience for it. But I wanted to give people a position to do that if they wanted to support us at that level and if they wanted that experience. And so I feel like it also set an upper level too. Like we have $5,000, $8,000 rewards. Coming in at $100 does not seem – Unreasonable when you have these higher.
1: It's such a deal.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, by giving people a wider range of levels they could come in at, you give people the position to support you at the level they feel they can both afford and the sort of some level the strength of their feeling. They're voting a little bit with dollars, and they're voting a little bit with with uh, you know a form of love, a form of of um, affection for what you do.
1: All right, so I've got to assume that. You went on a little bit of uh, an emotional roller coaster ride <laughs> during those thirty days. I wonder if you could just take us through, sort of, what are your stages of freaking out and feeling confident and freaking out again? Because I, I talked to you during this period, and I, sometimes you were supremely confident, and like, wow, for a guy who's only had his thing fund at twenty percent so far, he sounds oh, super confident God. about. I'm going to order the books, and then other times, I would imagine that you were pulling your hair. Yeah, up.
0: that's exactly right. That's right because uh, you got you got the, the live the live Glenn emotional roller coaster. It's uh, it's called. Extra if you want to ride that roller coaster, it's the
1: only way to fly. Oh my
0: god! Well, here's the thing that's funny is uh, you try to figure out what the size of your audience is. I think when planning a good Kickstarter campaign, crowdfunding campaign, you think. Uh, how many people are practically going to support this thing? And in my head, I had this number that um, we've probably had over 100,000 people subscribe at some point in the 15, 14 month history of the magazine, you know, since October 2012. Because you get churn, as you know, in the magazine business, you get tons of churn. Yep. So I thought there's a lot of people who have subscribed and they stop subscribing you know, to fatigue. I get email about that all the time and we were talking about that earlier. Yeah, People get overwhelmed. They're like, I don't have time to read it. I've read enough or I'm exhausted with this medium. I read seven issues or f- 12 months and I stopped reading it six months ago and I'm not asking for my money back but like I'll come back to you at some point. Like and I get that a lot. People say – I'll come back at some point and uh, and I'll uh, subscribe again or something. And so I wanted to capture people who felt like they liked what we were doing, which seems to be a fairly big number of people or people read free articles on the site or whatever and uh, give them a way to read a finite quantity of things. So I thought, all right, and this is kind of a long way around. but This is why I was confident at some level is I thought I only need about 100,000 people who have some interest because I need to capture like 1.5%, right? I need 1,500 people to make this work. That's where the math is. Do I have an audience of 100,000 who are interested at some level because only 1.5% from my days years ago in direct marketing, only 1.5% are going to actually consummate it at some level, right? And the first 24 hours – Like I say, it was crazy, right? $16,000, 33%. Like I think three, four, 500 people was this large number in the – Oh wait, I can even look. It was – yes, 3 – 525 people, almost exactly 33% in almost exactly 24 hours. And I thought, well, this is in the bag. This is great. All I need (laughs) is the – because I'm like, A, we're a third of the way there, which is great. B, the momentum in Kickstarters often lasts for two days. One day is rarer, actually. Usually you get this kind of push. And I thought, well, two days in, we'll hit 50% surely. And then the rest of it is just working on that last 50%, maybe getting to stretch goals. But this is going to be great. Hit hour 24 and the pledge is basically stopped. I mean they almost <laughs> literally stopped. And I'm thinking, is, is Adam Smith's unseen hand of the market <laughs> did it just take its hand and point somewhere else? Like what? I mean it's the weirdest thing to watch a mass audience – in action where you're like, people saw it hit some number and they turned off. So here's part of my planning problem. I'd wanted to launch the Kickstarter on October 10th, which was the one year anniversary of the magazine and finished it before Thanksgiving, before people were off. I did not hit that goal. (laughs) Too many things going on, too much planning. And I basically launched it the last possible moment, November 20th, where I did not, start or end within a major holiday, but was pretty darn close on both ends. And I wanted to time it so that there'd be an issue of the magazine at the start and end. So by doing it on the 20th, we put an issue out that day. It was a Wednesday, finished it on a Thursday. So we had five issues or three issues of the magazine, five for, uh, episodes of uh, the New Disruptors during that time to promote the thing and, you know, f- and essentially four full weeks. So the problem was I launched it on... A Wednesday, <clears throat> we did the whole day, and then people went off for Thanksgiving. Yep, <laughs> was the thing. So I can trace it. You know, it's like the, it's, it tapered off on the fr- you know, on Thursday evening. People are planning to go away in America for that whole week, and it just and people are like, oh, it's doing okay, and people will be like, oh, I'm coming in. I'll, I'll just do it later. I got a lot of stuff going on, or I don't get paid until you know, my next paycheck's December fourth or something. Got to do some Christmas shopping. Yeah, exactly. Right, and people are planning for that. And they're going off their family. They're, they're writing checks for going out to dinner, they're writing checks for turkeys. I mean, it's a terrible time in America. So I saw, you know, definitely a, a, a slow, very slow climb over Thanksgiving week. And that was certainly, you know, that was concerning, but it kept going up there. And I thought, well, we're not doomed. You know, we're going to, if we get 50%, the odds are 97% at our project scale that we're going to get to full funding. So I thought, all right, I can cope with this. But there was some, there were a couple of weeks when I'm like, Oh my God! If I just made this terrible mistake, I thought I understood it. I thought I could get enough people. I'm, you know, I don't want to make people crazy during Thanksgiving, and I don't want to be commercial at a time when people with their families are not going oh, to. And um, and so part of what the turnaround was is I talked to John Gruber about coming on the talk show to talk about um, Newsstand, and he was happy to have me come on, and, and he helped me, you know, pimp the project too. And the talk show has you know, like 70,000 regular listeners, uh, downloads, and then he also posted on his site you know that's the that's a big advantage that um he has a bully pulpit he does and people who listen to his show tend to follow his recommendations for things. And I knew there would be a mismatch at some level. Like some of the listeners of the show would know me from the Mac world. They wouldn't necessarily know me or the magazine at all, although John's talked about it before and there's the intersection with Marco. But that marked the turning point is, you know, the talk show, we recorded it. It went out. And the minute it went out, pledges started to have this big pledge. People were like, I heard it on the talk show. I totally want you guys to succeed. I'm getting a book, you know. And so I got in, I want to say a a decent but – relatively modest number of people like maybe a couple hundred people total which is significant came in through the talk show thing and then that just lit the fire we crossed 50 percent i said i'm confident we're gonna go like i'm gonna write checks because i'll make the i have some plan b's and c's if the if we don't fund fully but we're just gonna go for it we're gonna do the design part and start signing contracts and that's what i did and then you know, as you saw, it tapered off a little bit. I'm looking at it. Uh, I can put the chart up in the show notes even. But it tapered off after the talk show went live. But but the, the rate of increase was much higher than it had been. And you know, we reached these things. And then we hit this point. This was the fun part. The last week. So it's Monday of the last week of the – You know, this is like the 16th of December. And it's going to end on the Thursday in the middle of the day on the 19th. And um, people started freaking out. It was interesting. I'm watching on Twitter and on Facebook and contributors and readers and unrelated people who just I know, like you and I know, uh, in the Mac community and elsewhere, are like, oh, my God, Glenn's thing isn't going to fund and I mean, seriously, it was so – I mean, it's so lovely. People were like, oh, he's worked so hard on this and all these people. Yeah. It's great. Look at all the writers involved. These are all people you know and I've been reading these people for years or I am one of these people. I want the book to happen. People went berserk and so it went in the space of that last three days. Uh, we started Monday with – I'm looking at the chart here – with $42,374. At the end of Monday, it was um, – had gone over the top. It was like by the next day, within 24 hours, went to $51,000. It was like $9,000 in 24 hours. And then it still ticked up. You know, we finished at, uh, at almost $5,000 above that. And it was partly a couple really nice people came in and, uh, pledged at the $1,000 or more level to get, um, this is one of the levels I didn't discuss, uh, sponsorship on this fine program. Right, so they get the bundle, they get the support, they get public acknowledgement, and they get something that's actually a you know a dollar item that people pay for um, at a retail level, and they're paying you know they're paying rack rate essentially for it. But they came in at that level, and this is the sweet part: is they're going to be a future sponsor. So I will mention them. But Mailchimp is a very interesting organization. They do mailing list uh, management, and um, this is not an advertisement. This part is just me being happy with other people. Is <laughs> uh, I use Mailchimp for the magazine's very small list for free shouldn't tell them. I don't pay for their software. Uh, and I'm looking forward to actually having a list big enough to pay them for. But they have – I think they were saying they sent out – is it 7 billion emails? 70, <laughs> it was some – I don't know. They just published a report. I'll put a link in the show note. But they added like 3 billion email addresses in 2013 and sent out – it was 70 billion emails. I mean they are a big force in what drives marketing and communication on the internet. And they have this really neat habit, which is they like to support – creative projects. So they like to put Kickstarters over the top. And I remember someone had told me this. They're like, you should watch because MailChimp might just might you know do a Santa Claus and come in. Huh. And sure enough, we were at 46,000 whatever. And I'm counting it down. I'm driving people crazy on Twitter because we're count- you know, counting it down. and
1: Crazier than usual. Crazier. Yeah, you exactly. Say. This
0: is my normal volume plus some. And we're getting <laughs> down there and someone's like, hey, you just went over the top. I'm like, what are you talking about? We were at 46,500. Like, no, you're at 48 something. And I look and I'm like, oh my gosh! Their Mailchimp came in and they put in this podcast bid because they wanted to. They wanted to kick it over to fund it and it, and and they're. I didn't out them initially, and then I realized pledges. Uh, pledges are shown on the Kickstarter page to everyone, and then they outed themselves, and I was happy to, to do it. But it's like that's part of that community thing. Is like Mailchimp, and and you know they're not alone. There's a lot of companies that want to support creative stuff, and this is one way they do it: is they try to fund or help you know, create a little bit of a fire underneath something that's going on. So that's where I got a little crazy, Jason. That's and where I said
1: – Well, and that's, I, what, that's when it starts to take off where now that it's funded, you've got this whole other psychological element which is, um, oh, it's guaranteed now. I can just I can just jump in. And then those always those people, those Johnny-come-latelys who are like, mm-hmm. oh, well, now that it's a real thing, sure, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, now it. they don't have to – I mean people – I know that people generally understand – well, I shouldn't say this. I believe – if you've ever backed a Kickstarter before, which is now millions of people, but not hundreds of millions, you know that your card is not charged if the project isn't uh, doesn't reach its goal. Indiegogo, you have the option of, and some other sites, you have the option of collecting all money as a project creator, even if you don't reach your goal. And I think there's maybe people have a little nervousness, even if they know that, but a lot of people don't know. A pledge, you're given a credit card number, you're committing. So I think for some people, until it's Funded and it's going to happen. It seems like they might be giving money away, and the thing isn't going to happen, and they'll be out the money. So I think there may still be a little bit of an edge, even if you know. I mean, I have that too. There's some projects I look at where I'm like, I actually want the thing, and I'm less likely to pledge to help it happen if I don't know the people involved or I'm not like desperate to have it. I'll wait. And, oh, it's funded. Well, now I'll order it because now they're sure to make it. You know, or ninety-nine percent sure to make it. I had thought, talking back to the planning stages. The $48,000 number was very carefully constructed and it's turned out to be pretty accurate as I've gone through these stages of getting fulfillment and writing checks. I put in – there's a margin for error too. I wanted like a – you know, Kickstarter and Amazon take like 10 percent and it's turned out to be less but the state of Washington will be taking from a half to 2 percent uh, with the business and occupation tax, which is a gross business tax. So I had to factor that in. I mean that's a lot of money. So off the top, I knew it was 10 percent was going to go away. And then I wanted a several percent margin of error because you know you can't budget for everything, right? And um, so the number, uh, so that forty-eight grand number, people asked me at some point, like, well, why don't you set it to twenty-four grand? And I thought there are two things. One is I didn't feel I could fulfill at the quality of book at that level, and I didn't want people. I didn't want to say a twenty-four grand will do a paperback, and our stretch goal is forty-eight grand for a hardcover. I didn't think that would be that compelling. I thought that would seem too average to people and not give them enough oomph to get involved. And the second thing was if we funded at 24 grand, I wasn't confident the budget would allow, would allow it to actually all work the way it should and, and I really would want to have more sales. So I thought, you know, 48 is the line in the sand. It's not 50 and it was purposely done. I, didn't, I thought 50 might seem like too much.
1: Yeah, it feels like a real number too, right? Like you actually yeah. calculated that number whereas 50 sounds like a made up round number.
0: Yeah, and I have spreadsheets that show, you know, I have all the costs of the writers, designers, proofreader, editor, um, you know, there's no dollar figure in there for me because I'm the guy who gets to take the risk. So, uh if we turn a profit on it, you know, then I get to pay myself at some point <laughs> from the from the publication, but I put in the number for hardcovers is, you know, I want I want the Kickstarter also to fund not only do we have an ebook to sell afterwards, but we have extra hardcover books be, that I print in the same run. So, I'm hoping to print two to three hundred additional books above all the um, Kickstarter rewards and any pre-orders that come in the next you know, two to three weeks as we take them. Go from there and have two or three hundred extra, put some into Amazon Fulfillment uh, to sell directly, let them handle it. Some, maybe even to bookstore channels, if I can uh, do that through a, a small distributor uh, and or sell directly from, you know, My garage. So part of the budget is to do what I think a Kickstarter is best at is underwrite 100% of the expenses, but not necessarily produce a quote, profit, unquote, like money left over that has no specific assigned purpose. Now, some people will do that. They calculate in, they need to pay themselves for a year to do it. They have to put in 20, 50, whatever thousand dollars so they don't have to do other work. And in this case, because I have a going concern I didn't want to budget for time outside all the contracting expense and hard expense except for that margin, but I did want to budget for books. So ostensibly I could sell you know dollars to $15,000 more of books after the campaign, just the hardcover, not counting the e-books, and have that be part of the extra reward at the end as that helps go towards operations at that point.
1: Now we're running horribly short on time oh, I, I did true. <laughs> but I did but I did want to ask you one last thing, and you touched on it there, which is uh, we talked about how the magazine as a concept is uh, you know this fortnightly publication, and for some people that doesn't work the Having a, an annual book is an interesting idea, or a or an ebook, or a, other kinds of collections where you take the best of, or even all of this material, and offer it in some forms that aren't a periodical. And I think this is step one on that path. I, I, I'm wondering if you've thought about uh, ways of doing this going forward. Are you going to do another uh, another book in a year's time, and are you planning on doing sort of ebook collections of the magazine in the ebook stores in the future too? Because those Those aren't quite periodical, but it's still the same content in ways that maybe people feel less intimidated by than signing up for that fortnightly publication.
0: Yes to all of the above. And I think this is, again, I think a strong lesson learned from talking to so many people about it is if you do your Kickstarter right – and that, you know doing it right doesn't always mean funding, by the way. I should say that doing it right means learning something from it. So my failed Kickstarter, I did everything wrong and I learned so much and it changed my life and it got me to this point. But doing it right is that you create the Kickstarter because it's this you know huge amount of effort. You create it as a foundation for everything. Everything you want to be doing for the next year or two, or maybe the rest of your life, and I think you know sometimes it's because it takes you a year or two to fulfill all the rewards and I know plenty of people have gone through that, or you know filmmakers and uh, cartoonists and uh and artists of all kinds um that's for sure in this case we're going to fulfill all the rewards by you know they'll all be in people's mailboxes even overseas. I hope by uh March uh, you know the books should ship in two 2000- thousand in February 2014 as a hardcover. Um, we're still on target for that. Uh, but so we'll be finished with the hard. Fulfillment part, but the basis was uh, you know when we're done with this, I have a template the designers have created and have perfected for what will work as an ebook format and in print. We've got an audience of people. Our mailing list is um, went from three hundred to almost seven hundred people in the space of a few weeks. That get an email about every issue that comes out, and I want you know to keep growing that. It's growing ten or twenty people a day now. So I have a totally different way of reaching people, except you know not just through the newsstand, which is in the past where. Most of the magazine subscribers are. I have now many, many hundreds of people who are yearly subscribers who've come on during this period who have now a long-term commitment um, as readers but may also be interested in other forms and I can give them discounts. You want a print book? Well, great. You're a subscriber. I can now build this thing where you get 25 or 50% off because you've already subscribed. You're already a supporter. Of this thing, um, so yeah, the basis is I want to do, as you say, I want to do themed ebooks. We have a lot of stories that didn 't make it into the collection that are great, but work better, like you know stories about gaming or or alcohol and drinking and beverages or or food um, and I have the template to do it i don 't have to now go out and pay or develop or figure out the process, all the expenses for that will have been paid for and will also figure out the process. I'm hoping to produce maybe a quarterly print edition and a quarterly version of the magazine that is a subset of what we publish every other week that will be closer to the size that some people will want to consume and that would be available both on a subscription and a one-off basis. I want to sell individual issues of the magazine um, as electronic items and maybe you know there might be an opportunity for print-on-demand for that as well. Um, So there's all of these things now that come from – putting all the time and effort into this and the expense of, of working out process where I don't think I could ever have afforded the time myself or paid people the money to get to that point. So that's the, that's the goal is this is not only a book but hopefully it becomes an annual book as you say and a whole bunch of other things that give people – just like with the rewards being spread out in dollar values to give people a position to come in based on what they want, the magazine does not have to be a monolithic subscription – And it has been because that was the easiest way to build it and build an audience. But between changes in the way that Apple's newsstand works and iOS and just um, the attrition of early subscribers and trying to find new subscribers and people telling me what they want. I mean the book is a direct outgrowth of people saying – you should do a book. And I've wanted to do a book. But people telling me that over and over again, if you did a book, I would buy it. Well, they did. <laughs> they weren't lying. Those people came back and they bought a book. And those people might buy the year two book if they like it. And they might not have any interaction with me or the magazine in the intervening period. But in uh, you know late 2014, they might come on and buy another book. and And it will be our second book. So we'll have shown that we can do it. We've delivered a thing. So all of this was meant to be and I think has – Succeeded so far in being a way to broaden the foundation of what the magazine is doing and to both reward the audience that likes what we're doing and brings in a different sets of audiences for whom a subscription electronic periodical is not what they necessarily want.
1: So in the end, you've uh, you've learned and grown and the magazine has been able to spread its wings a little bit and be more than what it was.
0: I think that's true. And, you know, I should come back to the – it's funny. I don't think I've mentioned this except in passing throughout. But, you know, part of uh, – you've been an editor for a long time. You've either signed or indirectly, you know, signed lots and lots of checks. I like doing collaborative projects. I like things in which everybody wins and – the magazine, because of how Marco founded it and his intent from the beginning and what I've been able to take over, has been, I think, a good place for – a good forum for people to come and write and get paid you know, well, if not super well, but, but decently. And part of my long-term goal is to pay people as well as possible. So the more I can lift the magazine's fortunes and make it something I can devote more of my time to and that has – a more sustainable, ongoing, uh, you know, growth curve from revenue. The more I can pay contributors and get more of their time, and and um, it's not polished. It's that funny thing. I mean, you know, as a writer, it's like the more time you have, the often the deeper you can make a story. Not better, but it's different. And the more time an editor and writer can work together, sometimes often you can make the story better. So more money doesn't necessarily mean better writing, but it can mean more care taking with the writing. Then can be afforded with less money, right. and so I, I want to make the publication, I guess, a better and better place for writers. And and you know, in planning this Kickstarter from the very beginning, said it all along, and I emphasized it during the campaign, is that everybody gets paid. No one's volunteering their time. A couple people offered to, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm I'm writing you a check. Like the check might not be huge, but you're getting a check because I'm publishing your work again, or you're doing this thing or whatever. Like, don't volunteer your time. The point of the Kickstarter is that we're raising enough money to do it right, not to do it cheaply. We're doing the right. best thing we can do and everyone who's backing it, part of their interest in backing it is that everyone gets rewarded. That it's not just a, a nameless project or a book they don't know who's involved with. It's like this is a thing that they own a piece of now and so they want to support you too. There's one other thing I wanted to mention. All right. Which is less less emotional but useful is People always ask about – and I'm going to publish an article at some point with more detail because this is a sufficiently big project that I think there's some useful information from it. Is People always ask about how much the Kickstarter effect helps you, um, how many people find you through Kickstarter versus directly. The breakdown is about 27 percent funds came pledged through Kickstarter – But what's interesting about that, and I will write about this more, is that...
1: um, So you mean 27% of the funds that you got came from people who found you on Kickstarter.com and not from other locations? Exactly. Wow. Which is huge.
0: But now here's the other part. So that was about $15,000. Almost $10,000 of that was through search on Kickstarter. Because we are called the magazine, (laughs) a lot of what I told people to do was go to Kickstarter.com and type in the magazine. And so I think a fair number of people did that. So people – so let's say that actually takes a big chunk out. So in the end, I want to say $5,000 for about 10% of the total came from – and Kickstarter gives you this huge breakdown like friend backing email, other Kickstarter user profiles, um, being on the popular page, being on the staff picks page, Kickstarter newsletter. They give you a breakdown of all of that stuff for referrals so you can see. So in the end, I want to say only about 10% of the funds – Uh, Of the pledges came from Kickstarter sources that are people discovering it very likely through Kickstarter and not through any other source. So that's a useful number. And I will publish more about that when I'm done with the horrible fulfillment part, which I won't tell you about right now.
1: That's a whole other podcast. That's another podcast. The fulfillment and logistics podcast.
0: There'll be I've been talking. There's be some logistics people we bring on later. We'll talk about um, about tax because I did this, of course, at the end of a tax year. So all the money came in at the end of the year, and all the expenses are in the next year. Uh, I've got an accountant. We want to talk to you about tax. We've got uh, fulfillment people. We're going to talk to you about how you deal with the back end of um, crowdfunding, the output when you get all the responses back and. And all that. So those will be
1: future podcasts. Something more to look forward to. Yes. And those will all be hosted by this <clears> podcast's <throat> regular host, Glenn Fleischman, who I'd like to thank for being my guest. And I guess you should thank me for being your host. Is I that mean, how this you. works?
0: Thank you, Jason. Thank you for hosting this podcast. I w- wanted to talk about this stuff, and I appreciate having such an expert host,
1: I, an expert
0: veteran host of podcasts. Jason regularly hosts The Incomparable, a wonderful show you can find on the 5x5 network.
1: That's right. Or just visit theincomparable.com if you like. I heard of that website there's a great zeppelin on that there website. is a zeppelin this is true well that is this edition of the new disruptors as always you can check us out on the web at newdisrupt.org and we're part of the boing boing family of podcasts boingboing.net until next time when i won't be the host goodbye from the new disruptors can now support the production of this podcast directly at
0: patreon.com slash new disruptors that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash new disruptors support us at a level that starts at one dollar per month at higher levels you can get our thanks on the air t-shirts and more You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bet. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.